In a few moments, I'll sign an executive order taking vital steps to increase the supply of kidney-available transplants. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was President Donald Trump on Wednesday announcing a new initiative to transform kidney care. This action will also dramatically improve prevention and treatment of this life-threatening illness while making life better and longer for millions of Americans. It's a tremendous thing that's happening. More than 37 million patients suffer from kidney disease, and Medicare spends more than $100 billion per year on treatment. It's a story that we've covered closely at Politico, especially this week, after first breaking the news that Trump planned this new initiative. And to help explain kidney disease and what the Trump administration is trying to do, I sat down with nephrologist Carmen Peralta, a kidney doctor who's a professor at UC San Francisco and chief medical officer for Cricket Health, a startup focused on kidney disease prevention. When I meet a patient in the emergency room and I introduce myself and I have to tell them, you now need dialysis because you have end-stage kidney disease. And the patient looks at me completely shocked, has never heard anything about being having something wrong with their kidneys. And then I'm giving them this diagnosis. As a physician, it is heartbreaking. You'll hear that conversation in a moment. But stay tuned to the end of the show, where you'll also hear a short update on the lawsuit to strike down the Affordable Care Act after contentious oral arguments at an appeals court in New Orleans this week. Dr. Carmen Peralta, welcome to Politico Pulse Check. It's great to be here, Dan. The Trump administration on Wednesday announced sweeping new measures to change kidney treatment. You were at that announcement. We're going to unpack what some of those measures are. But I wanted to start with some background for our listeners. They may understand cancer or Alzheimer's disease. I have found that folks don't always understand what is involved with kidney patients. You've spent your career treating kidney patients. What do you know, doctor, about how this disease affects people that you wish more people understood? Well, kidney disease uh, is highly prevalent in the United States. Most people don't understand that. Uh, what is hard about it is that most of the time the disease doesn't have any symptoms. And so the people that are affected may not understand that they have it. And it puts them at risk for progressing all the way to needing dialysis or a kidney transplant. Um, and that can mean a complete change of life, meaning if you go on dialysis now, you might need to go to a center three times a week uh, to get dialysis. You may not be able to work again. If you're the caretaker of other people, then that inhibits your ability to do so. So it can be a devastating disease, not just for the patient affected, but their entire family. Um, enormous burden of disease. And one thing I'd like the listeners to also understand is that even if they or a family member are not affected, you're paying for it in your taxes. Um, and one of the reasons is because uh, our Medicare program pays for people with end-stage renal disease. And to give you a perspective- Known as kidney failure. Known as kidney failure, that's right. And that is when people need dialysis or a transplant to survive. And um, what, ha what has happened with the cost of that program is that at this point, it represents less than 1% of Medicare beneficiaries, but it can be up to 9% of the budget. So I, I do want to understand a little bit more about that Medicare decision, but, but, but first, just on kidney disease and treatment, you talk about patients going three times a week for dialysis. What does that involve? How long does it take? How painful is it to experience that procedure? 
So for dialysis, uh, what people need to understand is that it is a life-saving treatment that is uh, attempting to replace the function of what your kidneys would do. And what that means is that it has to filter the blood from toxins and then also get rid of extra water, which is part of what the kidneys do. And so what happens is a patient then goes to a center, they get attached to a machine via uh, lines that connect your blood supply. And so the blood is taken out of the body, then it goes through the machine where there's the, this filtering and taking out water and then return to the patient's body. Typically, that means anywhere between three and four hours sitting in the chair, not including the time it takes to get to the center, to prepare for the treatment, um, and then after. And typically, a lot of people feel very badly after the treatment with cramping or fatigue or um, other symptoms. And my understanding is that many Americans may die while on dialysis, waiting for a kidney transplant that might never come. The head of the Medicare Innovation Center, Adam Bowler, has talked about his aunt who passed away while on dialysis. That's right. And the mortality rates of people with end-stage renal disease is still up to 20 to 25% per year. And in fact, studies show that most patients on dialysis don't even realize just how at high risk they're in. Um, and these are death rates that are higher than many cancers. Why is home dialysis seen as a better approach than going to one of these centers? Is it just simplicity and convenience? Or are there other safety factors too. So let me take us a step back on that. And so what uh, we typically refer to any kind of replacement of kidney function as renal replacement therapy. And the reason is because it can be dialysis or it can be a transplant. Or you also could have a choice of conservative management, meaning that you do not want a procedure and you want to just increase your quality of life. So these are all options for renal replacement therapy and we have to be very clear that all those are possibilities. Regarding dialysis at home, uh, there are two modalities. You can do it by the blood, like I just described, but there's another modality that uses your abdomen. Uh, there is a membrane in our abdomen called the peritoneum that can act as a natural filter. And that modality is completely different because it doesn't require any blood lines. So you have a small catheter in the patient's abdomen in which fluid is exchanged. It's just like a solution, uh, typically based on glucose, that you put into your belly, can sit there for a few hours, and then drain it back. Um, you can do it either... Uh, at night, tied to a machine that does it at night for you, or you can do it manually every four to six hours. So it's a modality that's very safe. It's been around for many decades. Um, and in fact, many countries in Latin America, in Asia, uh, peritoneal dialysis, which is the name of this modality, is the number one choice because that is what people are able to do due to the infrastructure. Um, in, and then the most important thing to understand is that these modalities, whether it's peritoneal or home modalities, it allows patients to receive treatment every day or many times a week. So why is it better uh, than in-center? First, it gives people freedom to be at home. And we cannot underestimate the quality of life uh, possibilities for people that are now able to do it at home. Um, it provides dialysis more frequently. Um, and uh, randomized trials that have been comparing either lower dose or lower frequency or in-center to home uh, have shown increased quality of life for patients. And in some observational studies, uh, also increased uh, positive outcomes for patients. And to underline the point, other countries are doing this, Absolutely. Are, are pursuing home dialysis. We just don't do it at the same level here. You mentioned, doctor, that Congress almost 50 years ago decided that Medicare would pay for patients with, with kidney failure, end-stage renal disease. It was emotional testimony when patient even presented uh, while, being uh, while, while getting dialysis done. I, I'll link to the show notes for folks who want to read up on that. This move may have been well-intentioned to help 
patients, but at the same time, it created this separate Medicare program effectively just for kidney disease. How much of America's problems date back to that decision? I would say that the system that we have today is purely a result of that decision. But let me be very clear about it. At the time that it happened, in the late 60s and early 70s, and in 72 was when uh, this uh, this amendment was signed, it was the right thing to do, uh, f- d- given what we knew then. And so to put in perspective at wait, the wait, time- Wait, wait, why was it the right thing to do? Why was it important to carve out special treatment for kidney disease? There's not Medicare for, say, everyone with cancer or everyone with heart disease. So why did kidney disease need something special? So at the time, uh, the rationale was that it only affected a few people and there was now a life-saving therapy that could extend life. But that was very, very expensive. And there were panels that people literally had to go uh, in front of a panel of their peers and uh, healthcare providers to decide who would be worthy of getting this very expensive treatment. So the government intervened to save lives, to say we have this machine, people can live with it, and it shouldn't be based on your socioeconomic status that you're able to get it. And then there was also a lot of hope of the technology becoming cheaper and being able to provide this life-sustaining treatment. More importantly, the rationale at the time was that we were going to figure out transplantation and that people would get transplants. And if you listen to the congressional testimony, the estimates from uh, the budget offices and from uh, people, experts in the field at the time, could never have predicted the explosion of diabetes or hypertension so it, or obesity, which are all risk factors. At the time, what we knew about kidney disease was a few people that had either some rare genetic diseases uh, that were still, quote unquote, I will say quote, because that was how it was described, productive members of society that could now get this life-saving therapy and continue to be proactive members of society. The thing that nobody expected was the explosion of these other risk factors in American healthcare. And in looking at our ability to understand the epidemic of diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, which are all risk factors for kidney disease, nobody predicted that there would be 600,000 people on this program. It was predicted it would be maybe a few thousand. Um, And so where we are today, the reason I say that it was the right decision is because we had a situation, an example, of the government coming in to say we have a life-sustaining therapy that we believe will get more accessible over time, and your socioeconomic status should not be the deciding factor whether you get it or not. Um, so to me, that is a decisive moment in American healthcare policy. The issue then became that we paid for end-stage kidney disease once the kidneys had already failed. But there was very little, nothing at all, in the policies on earlier stages. So what I'm hearing is that the incentives got changed where there would be payment reimbursement for patients with kidney failure, and ergo, there was less incentive to prevent patients from having kidney failure. Do I have that right? That is right, but we also have to put in the historical context that at the time, we didn't know very much about earlier stages of kidney disease. To put in perspective, we didn't have a name for it. The chronic kidney disease name didn't come to be till 2002. The academic community, the nephrology community, had not agreed even on a definition of what it meant to have chronic kidney disease until those first guidelines came out. That's when I was training. And so that gave it a name of the disease at earlier stages before kidney failure. It also started giving us a language to understand uh, how long it takes to progress, what are the risk factors. We just didn't know much of it. And it really has been in the last 15 years that we've been able to describe the epidemiology of the disease. Let me give you one really important example. 
everybody thought that the biggest complication of chronic kidney disease was going on to dialysis. In fact, the most common complication is cardiovascular disease, death from heart failure, death from cardiovascular outcomes. So most people with chronic kidney disease have a much higher risk of having a cardiovascular event that will kill them than it will be to progress to end-stage renal disease. We didn't know any of this. And so now we do. The question is, why has it taken this long to move to earlier detection and prevention when we have known for 15 years and then even before that, we've known how to treat people with diabetes and kidney disease. Just, just a quick yes or no. Would kidney care in America be better if there wasn't this Medicare protection for end-stage renal disease? I would say no, because then uh, then we use, you end up with the disparities in access. At least, in my opinion, the idea of having the government intervening and giving this possibility allows for low socioeconomic persons of low socioeconomic status to be able to get a life-saving therapy. So overall, you think it's a good thing. The Trump administration now says it wants to reduce kidney failure and increase transplants. To do that, the president on Wednesday issued an executive order, and CMS Innovation Center is going to release a number of models that will change payment. The goals include cutting the number of Americans who have kidney failure by 25% in a decade, also doubling the number of kidneys available for transplant. Given what they announced, are those achievable goals? I would say that I applaud this order. I applaud this effort. We may not be able to achieve some of them, but I'm excited that the efforts are out there and that there's goalposts that we're, you know, there's metrics we're trying to achieve that uh, the administration is willing to pay for. Um, I think it's going to take a while to get there. There are many factors that I'm happy to discuss, including entrenched interests, but also, frankly, education of patients and providers and being able to understand how implement the best evidence. And so I, I love the metrics. I think that it is fantastic that we have such an ambitious goal and we will be working as hard as possible to meet them. Then let's unpack this. So of the payment changes that the Trump administration announced, which are intended to encourage more home dialysis rather than patients going to clinics, how would that work in practice? Um, so we'll rewind a little bit, and it's to go back to the knowledge that right now Medicare has paid for end-stage renal disease. So once a patient has a diagnosis of end-stage renal disease, regardless of age, you get Medicare coverage. So what this new rule is going to do is to allow people with chronic kidney disease at stage 4 or 5 to be uh, in programs uh, that would have the number one goal to slow progression of disease, um, and increase the use of home therapies. And we ha understand the models as they were announced today as allowing nephrologists and nephrology practices and dialysis providers to be able to take risk on total cost of care. In order to do so and to be profitable, then that means that your best incentive is to not have people go on dialysis. And so by aligning the incentive of what the patient wants to what Medicare is paying for, to me, that makes a lot of sense. Now, the devil will be in the details about how this actually gets implemented in practice because nephrologists are, are tr always trying to do that. They're trying to slow progression disease. They're trying to do the best for the patients. But the infrastructure of our system is not necessarily there to make that happen. So, to The give Trump you, administration says it's changing regulations in the system that should make it easier to focus on prevention. It will incentivize it. But I, and I think that that is a first step and a very important step. But then what we need to understand is, well, how are we going to achieve that? Because many of our patients have barriers that are uh, re related to food insecurity or housing insecurity or poverty or little access to care. So 
I think it's wonderful to have that, but now what we need to do is build an infrastructure that allows the very well-meaning physicians to be able to get there. And right now to just say, oh, go and manage that patient to slow progression, we, I can tell you the, I can tell you what medications they need to be on, I can tell you the blood pressure goal, I can tell you all of that. But until I address the holistic patient, the holistic care is going to be limited how much we can achieve. You mentioned the importance of increasing awareness. Why is that so essential? The best way I can answer that is tell you the patient's stories and, and my experience as a physician. When I meet a patient in the emergency room and I introduce myself and I have to tell them, you now need dialysis because you have end-stage kidney disease. And the patient looks at me completely shocked, has never heard anything about being having something wrong with their kidneys. And then I'm giving them this diagnosis. As a physician, it is heartbreaking because the patient at the time is shocked and scared and still doesn't even understand all the things coming to them, like being on dialysis and the things we, we talked about before. And then the worst part is when I go into the medical record and realize this patient has had chronic kidney disease for years. And for whatever reason, either they weren't told or they didn't understand, nothing was done about it and the patient didn't know. That robs the patient of the opportunity to make an informed choice about therapies. We just discussed transplant and peritoneal and home and even choosing not to do dialysis. When you meet a patient in the ER and you're going through that shock, that patient is unable to truly understand all their options and make the best decision. So to me, this travesty of American healthcare is probably best described by one of the patients who spoke today. One of the patients who spoke today, Tahisha, said, my providers failed me at the beginning of my dialysis continuum. It was through my own effort and my own research that I found the therapy that was right for me. So that is why awareness is so key, because awareness and early detection gives the patient back that time to be listed on a transplant list, to find a living donor and get a preemptive transplant, to understand that they have choices. So this idea that a patient I meet in the ER and then they never have a choice, maybe if they survive the episode and they're able to get on chronic dialysis, then I could change them to another therapy later. But that's a very different scenario than an organized transition into end-stage renal disease. You're an expert on this work. The administration has been developing these measures for some time. My understanding is that they talked to you. What did you recommend? I have always thought that the idea of early detection and restratification is the, is the number one step. So um, this has been an effort from patient advocates, from uh, organizations like the American Society of Nephrology, like the National Kidney Foundation, for years. I had the pleasure of being involved in many of these efforts through my career, and um, Adam Bowler at CMMI has really been a great leader around this. So what I've always been a part of is recommending uh, the number one idea, which is we have to pay for the goals and the metrics that we want to achieve. You cannot pay people to dialyze in center the most and then hope that that's not what's going to happen. And so the number one has always been let's pay for what we want to see in our patients. And I think today is a first step to that. Looking forward to reading all the details, but, and then I would say that my strongest recommendation has been around testing and what populations should be tested and screening. So we are hopeful to see what details are in the rule about that. Especially for low-income populations. Absolutely. Uh, race, I think, minority uh, groups that some of them might be at higher risk, people with high blood pressure, diabetes, and a lot of it is really who you should test, how do you should test them, and then educating physicians and patients as to what to do with the information. As an aside, I think it's interesting that the Trump administration is pursuing this, both politically and policy-wise, leaders in the White House and NHS Secretary Azar have made the case 
this is a major cost for Medicare. There are policy reasons to address it. At the same time, the Trump administration is not known for prioritizing low-income Americans. The ACA Medicaid expansion that they've sought to strike down as part of the the court case. Um, but this this does have bipartisan support. There have been Congress members on the Democratic side who have been applauding today's news. You talked about the entrenched interests, doctor, that have made this system what it is today. There are two for-profit companies, David and Fresenius, that dominate the dialysis market. That's caused complaints that there's not enough competition, that, that they have helped create the need for these, these standalone clinics. Do you think that world will continue in light of all of these new regulations that the Trump administration is pushing? The way I would, I would answer that is that we can't transform kidney care overnight. And we need these large dialysis organizations to be on board with these changes. Um, I know that they probably were, or, or at least the administration said today in the announcements that uh, some of them were part of some of their recommendations. So my sense is that if what this does is move those entrenched interests to have to redesign their models and their clinical care pathways to improve care for patients, then I'm going to be very happy. I don't think that closing all the clinics and starting over is really what we need to do. I think the issue is we need to have a shared goal of having better patient outcomes, paying for value, not for volume. And we have to make sure patients have a choice. And if we're able to do that and do it cooperatively with these large companies, then I think it's a win. Those large companies suffered on Wall Street this week. We wrote the first story on Monday and on Tuesday, those companies lost over a billion dollars in, in market cap value. My understanding from talking to folks on, on Wall Street is DeVita, Fresenius, they're depocketed. If they want to, they can get into the home health market. They can buy up services that will allow them to continue to do home dialysis. So they probably aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Looking forward, there is evidence that treatment at home is better. It's less expensive. There's bipartisan support around this. What will it take to actually get there? That is the key question, Dan. Um, in my opinion, um, as I said before, it is about understanding where the patient is. You have got to meet the patient where they're at. They are getting a diagnosis that is very scary, that could upend their lives. And it is our job to provide the infrastructure to allow that to happen. That means screening for social determinants of health. We spoke about that poverty and lack of access to care, social isolation. If you don't have care partners that can help you, that could be a barrier. So we are obligated to do that. Second, we need to think about policies that we have to restructure to allow that. For example, we need the home to continue to be an origination site where telehealth services are provided. We need to be able to provide telehealth and telenephrology or teledialysis care, even when it's not rural, right? So you could have the patient just living a couple miles down, but it might be uh, more feasible for them to get on a video than to come to your office as a nephrologist. So what I'm trying to say is that I applaud the effort. I think it's an incredible metric, but we have to rethink policies outside of just the dialysis payment model that are going to affect our ability to make it happen. And we need to embrace the use of technology uh, to be able to reach more patients. And in addition to educate more providers, the, the last thing is also that we need to incentivize training of not just nephrologists, but also primary care physicians, nurse practitioners in understanding home therapies, because we need them all to be part of the patient's team. So this is probably the one thing that I'd love the listeners to understand is that it will take a village. It will be multidisciplinary care. It will be nurses, it will be patient techs, it will be community ambassadors, it will be caregivers to be able to make 
institutional disease in the home or transplant a reality. Well, we will keep an eye on that transition and at your own work at UCSF and Cricket Health. Dr. Carmen Peralta, thank you for joining Politico Pulse Check. Thank you for having me. One of the biggest stories this week was unfolding in a New Orleans courtroom. Why does Congress want the Article III judiciary to become the taxidermist for every legislative uh, big game accomplishment that Congress achieves? Your Honor, Congress can fix this. It can fix it. It can fix it after NFIB. That was Judge Kurt Engelhardt, a Trump appointee on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, who grilled lawyers on Tuesday as a lawsuit to strike down Obamacare got a hearing. Legal experts have said that the lawsuit is flimsy, that the argument that the entire law should be struck down, everything from its payment reforms to Medicaid expansion that covers millions of people, simply because Congress got rid of the penalty for the individual mandate, that that argument doesn't make any sense. But a Texas judge last year thought that it did, and he ruled that the ACA is effectively unconstitutional. And Engelhardt and two other judges are now reviewing the case on appeal. And if Tuesday's hearing is anything to go by, the ACA could be in serious trouble. Engelhardt and the other Republican appointee raised serious questions about whether part of the law, or maybe all of it, should stand. I think there are three takeaways for Pulse Check listeners. First, this is very much the middle of the story. I've seen some grumbling on social media and elsewhere with folks like New York Times columnist Paul Krugman and former CMS administrator Andy Slavitt saying that this case needs to be getting more attention because of its huge importance. One reason it hasn't is because it's not clear what happens next. We're all just reading tea leaves based on some comments and questions in the court on Tuesday. And regardless of what the appeals court decides, there's a very good chance that this will go to the Supreme Court within the next year. More on that in a moment. The second issue is that Congress has very much brought this on itself. Listeners may recall the much-watched tax bill vote at the end of 2017. Susan Collins, the main Republican who had become a champion for voting to protect the Affordable Care Act, had decided to vote to get rid of the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate penalty. At the time, Collins said that she was working to uphold the ACA. She had gotten a deal with Mitch McConnell that there would be more measures passed to make the law stronger. Those measures never happened. But inadvertently, the decision by Congress to strike down the penalty for the individual mandate gave rise to the lawsuit that is now working its way through the courts. If Congress really wanted to stop that lawsuit, there are avenues that they could take. Nick Bagley, the law professor at University of Michigan, has laid out some of them. You can find a link to that in the show notes. And the third and final thing that we're watching is what happens if the Supreme Court takes up this case and it does become a significant election issue in 2020. What does that mean for Democrats who are either proposing to fix the ACA, improve on the ACA, or someone like Bernie Sanders who says it's time for Medicare for all to replace the ACA? If the Supreme Court strikes down the law, does it make it that much easier for Medicare for all to take root? Or will Congress be that much more stymied because of the fights that any Supreme Court decision will engender? That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Carmen Peralta of UCSF and Cricket Health, Jenny Ament for producing the show. You can find Politico Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. You can find me at ddiamondpolitico.com. You can find a new episode of Pulse Check in two weeks as we shift to a new schedule this summer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>